this is limitless possibility. I'm Luke Levitz Mable. And I'm Yannick Manga. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Ten months with Alexa. Ooh. But before we start, we have some follow-up. So first of all, uh, last week, uh, last episode, excuse me, when I discussed about the uh, NES Classic and also the uh, Apple event extravaganza, I kind of didn't have the time to look at the news of the Nintendo Direct, and the only news I saw was the release date of Nintendo Switch Online. Well, so if, if you remember, the Direct was going to be the day after we recorded, so we didn't actually know at the time. Uh, true. Then maybe I mixed my dates, because it seems... Like, I look at the article, and it seems to be all released the day we recorded. Nope, it was the day after. We recorded then, one uh, day early because of Cocoa Heads, remember? Yes, then I don't know how to read a calendar, mm. which would be a possibility at this time. So all of this is to say we add minimal details about what uh, what Nintendo was about to say for the Nintendo Switch Online, and now we have all of those details. Uh, I won't focus too much about the online platform itself, just that it was uh, launched on, on September 18, a couple of days after our last episode. Uh, what I want to focus on is the NES support aspect of it. And again, Nintendo is back with their weird name. It is called the Nintendo Entertainment System dash Nintendo Switch Online. So I guess they like to bring back this, like, the generation. So the NES is the name, and then we have specific edition. We have the NES Classic. We have the normal, mach- the normal console, and we have now the Nintendo Switch Online. So uh, the NES Switch uh, Online stuff is launching with 20 games. And I've went through the list and out of 20 games, 12 are already included in your NES Classic. Uh, if you want to have the exact line lineup of games, I would invite you to look at our show notes. I'll post a link to it, which will also include the nine next game that were teased. So Nintendo already teased a nine next game, which will be released three per month for the next three months. So they already released a lineup for October, November, and December. Um, and I think that I think there's about a game per month that is already included in the NES Classic too. So it seems to be launching with a strong lineup of NES games. Related to that, Nintendo released new hardware to support this new platform, and they released those uh, Switch NES controllers. So they are kind of Joy-Con replica that are in the shape of the NES original controller. They'll be sold in US at $59.99 USD or $79.99 Canadian dollars. And there is a quite interesting limitation to those. They are going to be only sold through Nintendo's online stores on Nintendo.com. And you will be required to be a Nintendo Switch Online subscriber to be able to buy them. And I think right now it is the same if you want to pre-order them because you can pre-order them today. This isn't the first time they've done this kind of thing because during the Wii era, uh, Club Nintendo in Japan released Super Nintendo replica controllers for the Wii that were literally the same, uh, well, Super Famicom controllers that you could plug into the classic controller port of the uh, of the Wii. Uh, what was that called? The Wii Mote. Um, so it's not the first time it's happened. It's probably the first time, as far as I remember, outside of Japan. But in Japan, they're used to this kind of thing. 
also there's an, two small gotcha. I don't think they are small, but there's two gotchas with those NES controllers. They are required to be detached from the switch to be used. So this, when they are attached to the switch, they are in their charging mode. Uh, and the other thing is they can they are only compatible with those NES Switch online games. And you can only order is it one or two? I think there's a limit though. Uh oh, I forgot to look. And uh, it's a two pack, so the oh, okay. you order one pair. Uh, but I don't know if there's a limit on the number of pairs you can order. No, I th- I think it's one pair. But yeah, they made it a pair so that you could play two player games together. Yeah, yeah, and also one of the big big feature of nes uh switch online compared to nes classic is the fact that two player modes can be played over the internet so i'm eager to see that uh we haven't become subscriber just yet on nintendo switch online i think right now uh what tony and i said is we'll be waiting for uh pokemon to get released in november uh to pay for the uh subscription and i w- i will put a my life in gaming video in the show notes which is the technical review of the nintendo switch online emulator so if you're obsessed with the details you can go listen to it and you can also go find out how many frames of lag there are in uh <laughs> multiplayer games wow okay i'm surprised usually send uh, you send me those uh, my life yeah, in gaming videos i'll i'll do to my youtube queue for sure I-, I thought you already subscribed to them by now so oh I- no 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 no. I-, I rely on you for that you're my subscriber fair enough next time i'll know <laughs> next item in my follow-up list is i uh i think i have a crystal bar or something it's weird last episode we talked about two uh possible classic consoles that could get released in the future and one of them happened and yeah no before everybody freaks out no it is not my beloved n64 classic i was so happy after that direct that it wasn't an n64 classic uh yes i still believe that it's going to happen yannick does not but well actually uh, I, I have a note on that um, I was listening to the 8.4 podcast, which is a great podcast from uh, the localization shop 8.4 in Japan. And it was Tokyo Game Show last week. So they had a b- whole bunch of guests there. And someone said something very interesting about the classic edition consoles, which is uh, Nintendo is actually doing the right thing by not releasing the N64 classic this year, if it exists, uh, and waiting until next year, potentially. Because they want to make sure that this holiday season they can actually fulfill all of the demand that's left over for the NES and SNES. And then once all of that's been cleared away, then they can stop producing those and focus entirely on a batch of N64 classics if it ever comes out. So I thought that was pretty smart and I hadn't thought of that. So it totally makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing that would make sense too is they might want to wait a couple of years still before doing that. Like to have a bigger gap between the original release and the classic release it's been 20 years though like more than 20 years they could wait for 25 if they want to yeah i was expecting maybe a round number uh and this is a good segue to the next uh to the next item is since i didn't i I did say it's not the nes that was released i was uh not anything i was like assuming that sony or microsoft could have done this with their original console and sony did exactly that so Sony announced uh, a couple of days after we released the last episode, the PlayStation Classic. And as the name suggests, it is a PS1 in its original form, but smaller. 
and it will be packed with 20 games. We don't have the exact lineup of games, but they've, uh, they've entered, no, they've, they've teased, uh, Final Fantasy VII, Jumping Flash, Ridge Racer Type 4, Tekken 3, and Wild Arms. That are the five teas that they've demoed in their uh, blog post and uh, video announcement. Uh, I expect that the full line, uh, the full list of game will be announced closer to launch and the launch will be on December 3rd, 2018, which they did say it was an historical date. My guess is it's when they release the PS1 or something like that. I don't think so, but I'd have to go look it up. Yeah, it's something I forgot to look it up. I just like while reading the announcement, it was like, oh, December 3rd is a historical date for us and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, sure. I believe you. I don't know why, but I believe you. And the price is quite, um, it's in the ballpark of the, uh, the Nintendo consoles, but it's a bit more expensive. So it's going to be $99.99 USD, so 100 USD, or $129.99, so 130 uh, US, uh, Canadian dollars. So it's a bit more expensive, but I think it is still in the, uh, impulse buy, uh, range uh, at that price, uh, especially to go back to my nostalgia argument. Uh, compared to Nintendo, uh, it seems that they're already hinting that it might be in low production because they said that it will be sold in select retail stores, uh, and select retail partners plus on Sony store. So expect it to go fast, especially if it launched in December 3rd. Uh, they will, this is, this is going to be a good, uh, last minute gift for your beloved uh, video gamer in your family or maybe siblings or partner so real-time follow-up december 3rd 1994 is the japanese launch date for the playstation which is probably why i was confused because i thought it was like earlier in the year than december 3rd but it would make sense that the japanese release is in december because usually playstation stuff comes out in december in japan i just forgot hmm okay that that's why that's why i didn't look it up because i assume it was the original launch date and but didn't think that it was the the Japanese one and not the like, uh, US or EU one. Another thing that's been slightly controversial about the PlayStation Classic is that Sony has come out and said that um, the game lineup is going to be different by region, uh, which I don't understand why this is controversial at all because, first of all, the same thing happened with the uh, Famicom and Super Famicom uh, consoles. Like, different games give nostalgia to different regions because not all games were released in all regions. And I think a lot of people were really looking forward to the PlayStation Classic as being a way for Sony to release Japanese-only games in non-Japanese markets. And I think, like, while that would be really cool as a sort of collector and enthusiast thing, it is not at all the job that the PlayStation Classic should be trying to do. And they should be releasing those as PlayStation import classics like they did on the PS3 and the PSP and the Vita instead of trying to push that into PlayStation Classic and then people buy it and then they're like, what the fuck is this Mahjong game? Yeah, yeah. The, what I, I'm just looking it up. I, I think what people are afraid is compared to the NES and the Super NES, uh, this is NES Classic, is that a majority of the game will differ from region to region because if you look at the game, a lineup game for the SNES Classic, only eight games out of 30 changes uh, between the uh, NA and PAL one versus the Japanese Famicom. Yeah, out of 30, you have um, a good lineup that is common for all region compared to if Sony's always saying that the lineup will change out of 20, I would, personally, I would expect that 
uh, a lot will change. And yes, uh, if it is t- tailored to the games I was playing when I was young, so so be it. Uh, if I was uh, personally, I'm not expecting uh, to get like Japan exclusive, but I'm sure people would have expected that. But the difference for PlayStation in particular is like for Nintendo, it's easy because the NES, like a lot of the iconic games on the NES, were developed by Nintendo, and they released like 95% of those games in all regions. Whereas if you look at like, well, a lot of the games are third party that are popular on PlayStation. There weren't that many like Sony developed games that were actually like big things in all regions. Like Wipeout was really big in Europe, wasn't really big outside of Europe though. Uh, if you look at uh, Crash or Spyro, those are mostly popular in North America and Europe, but not so much in Japan. In Japan, it's really more RPGs that took over the market. And over here, it's really more like platforming games. So there's much more variation in the games that were popular in each region for PlayStation launch period than there was for uh, NES. And I think that's probably why they want to set expectations correctly instead of thinking like all regions get Spyro, all regions get like all of this stuff. Like the, the five games that they've announced have been pretty good popular games in all regions i'd argue maybe wild arms is the least known of those um but they've they have a good base of five games that are good in all regions and then i think they could do completely different games in all three regions and get away with it yeah i do hope that gran turismo will be included but like we discussed in the pre-show uh yannick was telling me that because of the uh brand licenses um it might be hard to get a re-release of the game the same way when we discussed in the last episode about a re-release of goldeneye might be hard to negotiate with the james bond james bond franchise so still believe that it could happen because gran turismo is a sony platform so it might remove one barrier there uh and it might be deals that they already have signed again for the new games uh with the same manufacturers car manufacturers so hopefully finger crossed it is included but uh, i could understand why it wouldn't be included i think the fact that you can't buy those games on ps3 in any region is a sign that it's probably not coming and on top of that um i mean sega generally is pretty open to modifying their classic games to remove any branded stuff but sony has generally not done that so the anything that basically has brand licenses with regards to vehicles or branded uh not branded but licensed music music like the soundtrack to tony hawk's pro skater 2 which is a bunch of really good punk music uh don't think tony hawk is going to be on the ps1 classic although that would be great good so that was it for my follow-up let's go to yours Yannick. okay mine is going to be very short because we have spent a lot of time on (laughs) follow-up first of all uh, i talked about the weird chinese n64 called the iq and i wasn't sure if it was emulation or real n64 hardware well it's real n64 hardware which is even weirder yeah interesting yep uh, next up, we had an episode a while back about Nintendo mobile games, and since then they announced a collaboration with Psy Games to create a new action RPG called Dragalia Lost. That game was launched today. Unfortunately, it is unavailable in Canada for God knows what reason. It is available in like five Asian countries and the US right now, and apparently it has taken the new crown for the worst rarity rates in the entire mobile gaming business. So if you remember Fire Emblem Heroes, one of the... Be- bits of praise that we gave was that 
when you were trying to get high rarity characters from the random loot box mechanic, uh, the rates were very generous, generous to begin with, and they got better as you drew lower rarity characters. Uh, this is the complete opposite. This is apparently the worst <laughs> rate in the business. It's 0.03% for the highest rarity uh, characters. So if you want to waste a bunch of money, go check out Dragalia Lost on the App Store right now. And last wow. but not least, a long time ago, one of our best episodes was called Everybody Fucking Wants a Subaru. Uh, Everybody Fucking Wants an Impreza. Sorry. And Hey, you're, fi- you're screwing up with that title. Come yeah, on. Yeah, sorry. Well, my, my notes say my brother bought a Subaru, which is why I got confused. But my brother, uh, finally, he does not listen to this podcast, but he should have listened to this podcast because I've been telling people for years to buy a Subaru Impreza. He finally bought a Subaru Impreza. So I got to ride in it yesterday, and it is awesome. So I highly recommend picking up a Subaru Impreza if you have a driver's license. 10 out of 10. Official rating. End of <laughs> yeah, the episode right there. It, it, we're it actually your... reviewing the Impreza today. Yeah, I would like to know that this is the official passenger review of the is it a 2011 you said? Is it the, 2011, uh, 20, yeah. Yes, 2011 Subaru Impreza. Not WRX. Yes, you're right. Sorry about that. Just the normal Impreza. So yes, it's the official, still official passenger review from Yannick. Yep. That would be, that would make for a good YouTube channel. Passengers review by Yannick. Yeah, probably. I could join that guy. Um, there's a guy in Japan who is a student and he pays for, um, there's like Kaminoto style, um, car sharing services and they have fleets with tons of different cars so every week like he takes a different car and he makes car reviews uh, which is a really neat idea so i could be doing that but for passenger reviews but Mm. um maybe not right away i have another youtube series to work on first okay was that it for your follow-up yes then let's move hey alexa hey let's start 10 10 thousand timers Okay, so first of all, before I even do my introduction, I should warn anybody with an Amazon Echo to please go mute your Amazon Echo for the length of the episode. There is a nice little button, do not disturb button on your thing. Go press it. I pressed all of mine before this episode because I'm going to be saying Alexa a lot and I'm going to be saying Echo a lot. Not going to be saying computer as much. Um, Hello, computer. Today, we're going to be taking a look back at my 10 months of usage of the Amazon Alexa ecosystem since it finally arrived in Canada. I've been talking about this on the show for quite a while. And originally, this was just supposed to be a first-generation Echo Plus review, but then I bought two more Echoes, so I'm up to three (laughs) Echoes. So we'll be talking about both the models I own, which is... Whoa, 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 you had three now? Yeah. You have a tiny apartment. Why do you need three? Well, I have a first-generation Echo Plus in the kitchen and two second-generation Echo Dots in the bathroom and bedroom. Oh, true. Yes, I remember now you set up. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and additionally, if you have no uh, Amazon Echo devices, it's still interesting because most Amazon iOS apps will also let you uh, navigate the app using Alexa now and use a lot of Alexa features within those apps. So if you don't have one, you can still experience part of Alexa through their apps, which is interesting. So I have a bunch of different sections. We're going to be going through them one by one, starting with the setup. Setup process is pretty nice. However, I ran into some issues and I feel I need to be fair and bring them up because some of them were really head scratchers, Uh, starting with country and locale issues. So Amazon accounts can be bound to Amazon sites of any country or region, regardless of what the what country the account is originally bound to. Bound to. Wait, no, that makes no sense. I'm going to repeat that. 
Yeah. Amazon accounts can be used on Amazon sites of any country or region. So let's say I have an Amazon.ca account. I can log into that account on Amazon.co.jp, regardless of what country the account is actually bound to, which is what I just said. Uh, yeah. So it makes it easier to have like a device on one country and an account from another country. And then they all talk to together correctly. Until you get an actual device like a Kindle or Alexa or uh, Echo or whatever. So you may have unknowingly created your Amazon account in the wrong region. That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, Depending on what sign up form you used, you may have created an account in the United States without knowing you have a U.S. account. So if you signed up for Amazon Payments, AWS, or via the Kindle app on iOS, your account is probably bound to the United States. And this is an issue if you're in Canada and you want to use the Echo in a Canadian locale because the account country and the locale country of your device aren't going to match. And sometimes you're going to get weird-ass error messages that make no sense. Uh, mostly, this means that features relating to the Amazon store, such as package tracking or ordering items, will just give you an error message that means nothing every single time you do it. And at no point in the actual setup process does this get mentioned to you, so you need to do your own research to figure out what's going on. Luckily, you can log into Amazon.com and rebind your account to the correct country to make those features work. Uh, However, you can only bind uh, that account to a specific Amazon store, so if you use your Amazon account to buy items off of Amazon.co.jp, there is absolutely nothing you can do to make your Echo see those items, because they are in a different locale than your device locale. Oh, it's good that Lisa can fix the issue. I thought that the fix was, you need to create yourself a new account for Amazon, the, the correct, correct locale. Yeah, that would have been nonsense. But luckily, you can fix it. It's just that if you use a lot of international Amazons regularly, uh, not all of the features are going to work on your Echo if you expect it to work in all Amazon regions. Uh, the next thing is the setup assistant. So the setup assistant, like it's, it's pretty simple. You use the app to set it up, and it tells you to uh, log into a Wi-Fi network that your Alexa does. Like it, it's pretty standard smart home stuff. If you use, if you've used basically any smart home devices, it's pretty equivalent. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is it does let you save your Wi-Fi credentials to Amazon servers so that in theory, you only set up your Wi-Fi once and then all of those settings should transfer to your other echoes when you initially do the setup. Unfortunately, when I have tried to do this with any of my echoes, it has failed. Uh, And more importantly, the part that fails is if you have the box checked that says save my credentials to Amazon, that is where it fails. It saves, it fails trying to save. So I don't actually know if it's possible to restore that information because it has never actually saved correctly. I have waited like minutes and minutes uh, at a spinner and it never actually saves anything. And it doesn't actually complete the Wi-Fi setup if you do that. So then you have to uncheck it and then it actually works. I don't know if this is a Canada thing. I hear some people actually got it to work. Nice for them, I guess. Uh, but it was very strange to have that part of the setup process not work. What's even stranger is last week at the Amazon event, they announced this thing called Wi-Fi Simple Setup for their devices, which sounds a lot like exactly what this was supposed to do. So I don't know if I was just supposed to save my credentials blindly onto their servers and then wait three years before I could actually start logging into my other devices with that information. It's very unclear what that actually means. Uh, so that pretty much does it for the strange setup process. Now moving on to the assistant itself. 
this is one of the more interesting parts of the product. And my first point is it just works. No, but really it just works. Uh, Asking Alexa for opening hours of nearby businesses works really, really well. I have no idea what database it uses, but it is very good. And it usually picks the closest thing to where I'm living. Uh, there is a setting in the Alexa app for each Alexa device where you can say, this Echo lives at this address. And it uses that address as the base for every location-based query you throw at it which is really good. Uh, I assume that if you get like an Alexa Auto, which was announced this week, that is going to be GPS-based. Uh, I don't have a bunch of information on the Alexa Auto, but it does look like a very interesting product, and maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode. Uh, one of the things that actually really impressed me about uh, Alexa is how much stuff it can actually answer. Like, I was asking it like advanced cooking questions because I'm not very good at cooking, uh, I asked it the other day, how much time does it take to steam a potato? And it gets you an actual answer that is correct versus when I tried it with Siri and it gave me a web search result page, which was not very helpful. And none of the results in the actual web results were any helpful for answering my question. So it's a lot better at answering like actual questions that have answers uh, than Siri is. Another thing that Siri is not great at is reliability. <laughs> and uh, luckily, uh, with Alexa, I've only had really two failures for the entire length of my device ownership. Uh, so multi-room audio, which we'll discuss in a future section, multi-room audio groups can become desynced. And that doesn't mean that the audio gets out of sync. But what it does mean is that one device will play audio in the group, and the others will say they're playing audio if you ask them what's currently playing, but they will play silence instead of the actual audio which is really strange. Uh, another thing that happened is I was listening to ATP last week or the week before when they were talking about named timers on the HomePod. And then I get home and I try to cook something and I asked Alexa to make a named timer and it simply forgot how to do named timers for a 15 minute stretch of time. Uh, I blame Marco for this, but uh, it was really strange that it didn't do. work because it worked every other time. I do want to underscore the difference in design philosophy with Siri, uh, because I think this is a great part for why I really appreciate Alexa more than Siri. So Siri is designed, designed with the assumption that anything that can't be done entirely by, via voice can be handed off to a device, whether it's the same device you're currently using or an auxiliary one. And because of that, like Siri is very useful for doing things on a phone or an iPad more effectively than by navigating the touchscreen. For example, you can say, Siri, search the app store for Dragalia Lost, and it'll search for that, uh, except it doesn't actually know how to spell Dragalia, but that's another thing. Uh, and Alexa is built on the presumption that it's most, mostly going to be used on devices without screens. And Amazon explicitly chooses not to defer to the phone when answering requests. It's built on the assumption that if you're asking something by voice, you're going to want voice feedback 99.9% .9 of the time. And if you have an echo with a screen, visual feedback is always completely complementary to the voice feedback. There is no downgrade in voice feedback when you're using an echo with a screen because you might not be looking at it. And the fact that Alexa refuses to fall back to anything is a feature because it means that they actually need to make the damn assistant better instead of burdening the user with interacting with the device to complete what they were trying to do with their voice. So I think this is like, if you have to remember one big difference between the Alexa ecosystem and the Siri ecosystem, it's that. And I would argue that the HomePod doesn't exactly fix that 
because more often than not, like with even with Siri shortcuts or whatever, it tells you like, please use your phone to complete this task. And that is not what you want when you're asking it to do something entirely via voice. Uh, something that people do quite regularly with voice assistants is alarms. And what I have found is that alarms you dismiss with voice are far more effective than alarms you dismiss with a finger action like a touchscreen. Uh, I used to have three alarms on my phone every morning to wake up reliably for work. And what I found is that I would often swipe away the first and fall back asleep and sometimes even the second. And I once or twice, I even swiped all three away and I kept sleeping and I got was late for work. Uh, it's a lot harder to accidentally dismiss an alarm with your voice and stay asleep than it is to press a button on my phone. So I really like voice alarms and now I only have one alarm in the morning and it's sufficient because so far I haven't missed one. Um, there are, however, some maddening arbitrary restrictions for alarms. So if you want to set an alarm, you can only set an alarm 24 hours ahead of time. If you want to schedule an alarm in the distant future, or, well, distant, more than 24 hours, uh, you can't. You simply can't. It'll just tell you you can't set an alarm for la later than 24 hours, which is incredibly strange. There is a workaround. If it's a repeating alarm, you can just say, uh, schedule an alarm for the time you want that repeating alarm to be. And then you can log into the Alexa app on your phone and say, repeat on that weekday. And then it'll repeat on that weekday and not actually wake you up tomorrow. It's kind of weird, though. Um, another unfortunate thing about repeating alarms is that they can only repeat on one repeat pattern at a time. So what I mean by a repeat pattern is there's weekdays, weekends, and then Monday to Friday. Um, but you can't say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and have that be a repeating alarm. You have to set each day individually because you can only select one. And in the summer, I have a weird schedule where Monday to Thursday, I wake up an hour earlier and on Friday, I wake up an hour later. And that means I have to set five separate alarms instead of having two alarms, one which repeats on four days and one which repeats on one day, which is kind of inconvenient and it makes a big mess out of the alarm screen when you're trying to do it and of course if you need to change the time of the alarm it becomes complicated one of the great things about the alexa assistant is that it's constantly improving every friday you get a message with a bunch of suggestions of new things you can try with alexa and there are some really cool things in there sometimes like seasonal support for big events like the olympics you can ask alexa during the olympics when is the next Olympic women's curling match? And you will get an answer and it'll even tell you what TV channel to watch if you want to watch it on TV. Now, I do say that there is constant improvement, but it's not at the same rate that other countries have. So Canada is about four to six months behind on features that the United States gets, which kind of sucks. Uh, and that brings me to my next point, which is multilingual support. One of, one of the points that comes up a lot about Amazon products in general, and one we brought up ourselves before Alexa was available in Canada, was that Amazon tends to have lackluster support for countries other than the US, UK, and Japan when it comes to most of their offerings. And almost a year later, Alexa still isn't available in Canadian French, be, although it is currently being tested by select individuals. And I can't really say more than that, but it's not me. Uh, and a lot of people in the Apple community defend Siri, saying that it supports far more languages, which is true, and that Apple's approach to Siri means that most features are immediately available in all languages, as opposed to Amazon's slow rolling release approach across various languages. Now, as someone who's primarily interested in using a voice assistant in English, 
I find that the comparison between Siri and Alexa in English is fascinating because it's the best version of those assistants. And it allows us to best evaluate the best case scenario for those assistants. However, if you're using another language, it's probably going to be worse than what I said. And it's possible that different uh, assistants have different levels. Maybe Siri is better than Alexa in French. We don't know yet. It's not released yet, but we'll know when it's out. Yeah, and it is a, to me, it is one of the main reasons why I did, did not decide to get any of these is I think the first one to launch in Canada and have uh, French Canadian support was the Google Home. Uh, and now with iOS 12, the HomePod got, uh, French Canadian support. Uh, of course, Siri has been, uh, on, uh, available in French Canada for, I think, a couple of years now already. Um, so maybe I could consider all those options, but even at this point, uh, even with the added French Canada support, to me, the HomePod is not worth it. So I could look at the Google Home, but I'm not really excited to buy one of those Amazon, uh, those Google speakers. So maybe if Amazon were to do it, I could maybe like dip my toe into the, uh, audio AI assistant, uh, products with Amazon first. Yep. So if you're interested in another language where Siri and or Google Assistant are your, basically your only options, then it's completely understandable that you'd gravitate towards those products. But it's also kind of sad because you're stuck with assistants that are inferior by a significant mar- margin, in my opinion. So too bad. Let's move on to audio. So much of the narrative around the Amazon Echo speakers revolves around how, quote, bad they sound. Uh, and I think that I heard so many people saying how bad they thought the uh, Echo sounded that it actually sounded better than I expected when I got them. So first of all, Echo Plus, very serviceable as a single speaker for music. Um, like, I think most people's complaints about music on the Echoes is especially centered around the dot because because it's the cheapest product. That's the one that a lot of people are more likely to buy to try the ecosystem out. And I think if you're buying uh, the standard Echo or the Echo Plus, you're going to have like pretty serviceable music. Uh, Echo Dot is a big step down in audio quality, but it can be fine in specific uses. Uh, generally, I find the Plus is better for music and the Dot is better for spoken voice. I find that listening to podcasts on the uh, Echo Plus is a little troublesome because voices are too boomy with bass and it makes it hard to distinguish what people are saying. And especially while cooking, it is suboptimal, I find. Whereas the dot, it doesn't get as loud, so that doesn't help like for cooking specifically. But in general, I find that spoken voice is easier to understand because it doesn't have as much bass in it. Both echoes are fine for my primary usage, which is as room tone background music at relatively low volumes. Like 95% of the time, I'm listening to a jazz station on TuneIn Radio, and it is a pretty low volume just to have like nice background music in my apartment, and for that, it's perfectly serviceable. I'm very satisfied with my setup of having the Plus as the primary speaker in the main room, and having the two smaller rooms have a smaller dot that fills in the detail that's missing from the music due to the walls. Uh, I find it works very well, and when I'm in the, the kitchen slash living room, the music sounds very good. However, of course, if you want a speaker for deliberately listening to music with also the bonus perks of having a voice assistant, I would definitely encourage people to check out Sonos speakers or the HomePod instead. Now that I, I am reminded of the way you do, the way you did your setup and ends why you had three devices, um, 
by being used as background audio and really just to be like ambient noise uh, by having those small uh, speaker in the individual room and not having the sound to full blast it doesn't really show the imperfection of those speakers too much and is just good enough for the purpose you've decided to do with them yep like my volume is set to four or five max on the echoes generally uh so it and like one of the things i was going to say is that the volume levels aren't necessarily the same uh from echo plus to dot like uh, volume three might be significantly louder on the echo plus than volume three on the dot and all that stuff um so yeah it's it works pretty well uh Speaking of volume mismatch, let's talk about volume mismatch between music, Alexa's voice, and alarms. So one of the things that's pretty cool is you can set a static volume for alarms and timers that override the actual device volume setting to ensure that you don't miss them. So that means that my morning alarm, let's say, is going to ring at volume 5, even though normally I would put the volume on those devices to volume 1 while I'm sleeping it guarantees that I at least never miss my alarm. There aren't, unfortunately, separate settings for setting uh, the volume for music and Alexa's voice. And the issue isn't so much that the music overpowers her voice while she's speaking, because the ducking is actually quite significant on the music. But even with the ducking, the voice volume is too low, and it blends in with the ducked music bed, which is a problem. Uh, so I would like to see like separate sliders for Alexa voice at least to balance Alexa voice with music, because generally I find that her voice is lost in the music and it's not very good, especially for like timers and stuff like that. It doesn't work great. Next up, I want to talk about multi-room audio. Uh, so, I mean, I sort of implied it earlier when I was talking about like the quality of each of the speakers. It works remarkably well. In the smart home part of the Alexa app, you can create multi-room audio groups, which consist of multiple echoes. And now with what they announced this week, there are more echo-related devices, uh, like I think there's the Alexa Amp or something, which is, they, they release like three products that you can plug into various kinds of speakers to Alexa enable those speakers. Uh, and I think uh, with a future update, like Sonos speakers and all of that will start showing up in those multi-room audio groups. But for now, it's just multiple Amazon Echoes. Uh, devices can only belong to a single multi-room audio group, which is kind of a problem because if you want to create an everything group, that group does not exist by default. I don't know why. Uh, if you want to create an everything group, you can't also create subgroups for your rooms, which is kind of a problem. Uh, so you're going to have to decide which of the two you want. Uh, or you cannot, you cannot say both group at the same time. I don't think so. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Uh, like I said, each device on the network can have its individual volume level, which is great because volume three is much louder on a big echo than it is on a dot. So audio overall, pretty good. Next up is smart home. Uh, and this is where things get interesting because there have been very, very few Echo Plus reviews last year. A lot of people were down on the Echo Plus because uh, it, it, basically the gimmick with the Echo Plus is that it has Zigbee hub functionality. And Zigbee is a low-power mesh networking protocol for smart home devices. And the Echo Plus can discover these devices on its own and act as a hub connecting these devices to the wider internet. Uh, FYI, the Philips Hue ecosystem is based on Zigbee technology, so any bulbs that work with the Hue bridge should work out of the box with the Echo Plus. And in fact, depending on what kind of Echo Plus you order, you may actually get a bulb free with it. Uh, I have mine uh, 
right on top of me and I got it with my Echo Plus. So yeah, the reason that a lot of people were down with it is they saw it as a price raise on the original first generation Echo because the form factor is identical to the original Echo. And you got this Zigbee hub, which a lot of people thought was useless because if you're interested in smart home stuff, you're more likely than not going to wind up with either a Hue hub or a smart things hub or basically all of these hubs that do the same thing. So the fact that the Echo Plus is a hub doesn't really have any use. And another thing that is kind of unfortunate about the Echo Plus situation is uh, it comes with an, uh, a Philips Hue bulb, but anything that uses Philips Hue API integration requires a Hue bridge specifically. You can't use any Zigbee hub. So all of the apps on the uh, App Store that do cool things with Philips Hue bulbs won't work because you can't connect to the Hue API that way. So some people really complain about that. And to be honest, like if you already own a Zigbee Hub, there is no reason to pick up an Echo Plus over the regular Echo. Although I don't know about the new Echo Plus because they revved it last week and I haven't really done research on the new ones. But basically, if you have a Zigbee Hub already, all of that can be integrated easily into your Alexa Smart Home anyway, because you can probably download a Smart Home skill by the company that makes your hub to integrate those devices into it. So if you don't have a hub, which is the situation I was in, Echo Plus is very appealing because you can start using bulbs out of the box and the setup process is very simple. You don't even need to use the app to do it. You just say Alexa discover devices and automatically if the lights are on, they will show up in the Alexa app from that point, which is really cool. Speaking of devices, I should actually say what I do have. Uh, it's not a lot, to be honest. I have a Hue light bulb, the one that came with my Echo Plus. I have a TP-Link smart plug that I use for a kettle. And I have a Roomba 690 as of last week, uh, which is, we'll talk about its particularities a little bit later. Uh, one of the things I really like is Alexa-enabled groups, as they're called. So similar to um, multi multi-room audio, you can go to the smart home section of the app and create groups that put together multiple smart home devices. And generally, you want to create groups that equate to rooms in your house. Uh, you can also add Echo devices to these groups. And what that does is it gives that device a default context in which to execute smart home requests. So for example, if you have a bedroom group and you put your bedroom Echo into that group, you can ask Alexa to turn the lights off and then it'll turn off the lights in the room that you're in right now. And that allows you to use the same phrase to turn the lights off in any room you are, as long as there's an echo in that room. And that it, of course, is the one that picks up your voice. So that is really cool. I really like that. Uh, it's a nice touch. I don't like that some platforms actually make you say what room you're in when turning off the lights or turn the lights off will just turn off all of the lights in the house which is generally not what you want to do and this seems like a very pragmatic approach to how to manage this smart plugs in particular are actually pretty interesting with regards to that because when a smart plug is detected by alexa it gives you the option to configure it either as a plug or as a light so if that plug is hooked up to a lamp or whatever, and you want it to behave as a light when you ask Alexa to turn off the room, you can tell it which you want it to behave as, which is really interesting. Oh, yeah, that's a nice addition because uh, after trying to maybe see what I can evolve my uh, smart lighting, uh, 
to have more like automation in the uh, inside the house uh, i was starting to look at those uh smart plugs and it felt to me that every appliance that would like to connect to it will still need a human touch to make it work so you yeah, have a smart plug cutting and just like having some a uh, smart plug controlling the electricity to the device it would still wouldn't still turn on correctly because you need to have somebody uh leave it on or have like pressing a button it's not a switch on the device itself ah. but i could see that for lamps because right now that's what i can do where we put the uh we put the bulbs the use bulbs in uh some lamps that are plugged in the wall and you need to leave them on right yep. and having that in a normal lamp uh, would be quite nice you do lose you do lose some uh, interesting uh input where you can like control the output uh the light output and you dim the light and all of that stuff with bulbs themselves but i think for a lot of people just having a turn on turn off would be nice and really making it configure as a light bulb as a light is really interesting yeah it's really cool now let's talk about the roomba um so we're not going to talk about like the actual Roomba itself. We're going to talk about Roomba support with Alexa. Uh, although I do really love my Roomba. It is fantastic. Uh, vacuum cleaners are not a device type that is recognized by Alexa natively. So the smart home section of the Alexa app simply doesn't show my Roomba in that section. Uh, instead, you install a iRobot skill uh, from the skill shop, and that adds three main actions to Alexa, which is start vacuuming, stop vacuuming, and go back home. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem I can use uh, specific modes of my vacuum, like spot cleaning, uh, that have specific buttons on the thing. But it's still nice to have start vacuuming, stop vacuuming. If I'm really in a hurry and I need to clean the house real quick, well, let's be honest, it's not going to be quick because the Roomba is not the fastest thing in the world. Uh, very useful, but not fast. Uh, I can just like shout at my Echo and the Roomba will start and it'll be great. However, I'm going to be honest, 95% of the time, I'm going to be sticking to the va using the vacuuming schedule that's built into the iRobot app. Unfortunately, because it doesn't show up in the smart home section, I can't program routines, which we'll talk about next, uh, to schedule it inside the Alexa app with all of the other stuff in my smart home. Uh, but it isn't a huge deal breaker that it's not fully supported and it's nice to be able to invoke it from Alexa when I need to. So that's cool. So yeah, so right now the way I understand it, it is a skill and not uh, something a smart home, Alexa smart home device. Right. Because like er everything that you see in uh, the smart home support is really like a light or a plug, something that can be on or off, but not like something that is doing work or not doing work or a third state. Mm-hmm. Do they have locks and everything still? Like a bit like our Apple HomeKit? Locks? Uh, locks? I probably. Uh, I'm not hmm. sure. Well, I assume that since um, since Amazon has the thing where now Amazon drivers can come into your house, unlock automatically. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also have the ring doorbell. They bought that up. I assume they probably have some support, but I don't own any. So I haven't really had the chance to go look and see if they're actually supported in the app. Hmm. Now we get to the cool part, my favorite part, which is routines. Uh, routines are the automation feature that can tie together the Alexa Assistant, supported audio services, and smart home devices. And it's really cool. It's like Siri shortcuts, but unlike Siri shortcuts, which can only be invoked via a key phrase, 
Alexa routines can be scheduled to run automatically at any time of day. And this is how I have 95% of my Alexa routines configured. Another really cool thing is that 2018 Echo models are automatically able to trigger routines based on the temperature of the room they are in. So if you want to use it as a mock thermostat, if you have heaters and fans hooked up to some smart plugs, you can do that if you're into that kind of thing, which is really cool. Some some real life examples of Alexa routines. Automatically start the electric kettle five minutes before my alarm goes off so that I can pour hot water into my French press every morning as I get out of bed. This is a real one I do every morning. Uh, reset Alexa's volumes, volume to specific points throughout the day. Uh, so I'll, I remember a couple months ago, Mike Hurley was complaining on a podcast that like, there's no way to automatically make volume one uh, happen on all of my Alexa devices when it's time to go to bed. You can now do this. Uh, I even messaged him when it happened because I was so excited about it because it was a problem for me too. Uh, and I also have like the volume go up and down throughout the night uh, so that I don't bother my neighbors because I'm a considerate person. Okay, so you so you have specific routines to say like between like nine to five, the volume uh, set the volume by default to maybe like sixty percent, and then since I might have forgotten to lower it down from like five to midnight, you make sure that it lowers it down automatically, and then it mutes itself uh, from like midnight to eight the next morning or midnight to nine. Yep. Well, I, I make it volume one, not muted completely, just because like I like having feedback if I ever have to ask it to do something. Uh, but yeah, I, I put it at the minimum, but not muted. Uh, another thing I really, really enjoy and that I was thinking about writing an app to do before I got an, uh, an Echo was automatically start playing music shortly before I'm scheduled to arrive home. And automatically stop playing the music when I'm scheduled to leave home. Uh, and what's really cool is uh, these can be any audio service that is supported by Alexa. So I just have my favorite jazz station in TuneIn and I tell it play Jazz24 on TuneIn when I get home from work. Uh, stop playing it when I leave the house. Uh, we'll be getting into how to get it to stop playing music because there's not actually a feature to make it stop playing music, which is strange. Uh, but yeah, so those are a bunch of routines that I actually have and I really enjoy them. And sometimes I have like weird combined stuff. Like you don't have to make it do exactly one thing. You can make it do multiple categories of things at once. So you can say, okay, um, turn the volume to three, play the news after it plays the news, play music, uh, tell me traffic. Like you can make it do all of those things in order. And then if you have that automatically configured to happen every morning, like at 8.15, it'll just happen at 8.15 and it's great. However, there is some stuff which feels sort of inexcusable that you can't do in a sane way in the Alexa app. So here are some janky or unintuitive workarounds in case you have the same problems I had. Uh, so for multi-room audio... In the Alexa app, you cannot specify a multi-room audio group in your routines. So if you want music to play everywhere, it looks like you can't. But it just looks like you can't. You can actually make it play everywhere. It's really stupid. So when you go into the music thing, uh, it says, like, uh, start playing blank from blank. So uh, normally I would say, like, start playing Jazz 24 from TuneIn. And you fill in the blanks with those slots. Uh, you can just say, start playing Jazz24 on the Everywhere group from TuneIn, and that works, even though there's no UI to actually select a multi-room audio group. And this works with other names 
of multi-room audio groups as well. Uh, so if you know that, you can make your audio play everywhere and not have to set up three separate routines, which is something we'll mention in a bit, and then have it play on all your devices slightly out of sync. You can just say, play Jazz 24 everywhere, and it'll work. Um, there's also nothing to stop music playback. And this was one of the most interesting hacks I had to fi- find. Uh, so this requires you to be an Amazon Music member if you're in Canada because, well, I guess technically you could do Spotify. I'm just not a Spotify uh, subscriber. But you you need basically some music that has a big enough catalog of music for this to work. Create an Amazon Music playlist or Spotify playlist with the song The 10 Coolest Things About New Jersey by the Bloodhound Gang in it. This song is 30 what? seconds of silence. Ugh. And then it stops playing the playlist and it stops your playback. So that is how you can stop playing music. I have a Amazon music playlist in my account that is literally just called blank. And I have a bunch of routines that just play blank from Amazon music and music stops playing. So cool life um, hack. That sounds like the AAA uh, song people put in iTunes when they plug in their, uh, yeah, their phone it, to the car. It's totally that. And the problem is... Uh, there is actually a Wikipedia page you can go to, which is list of silent songs or something. Uh, and I had to find which ones were on Amazon Music in Canada, which was very tricky. This is the only one that was on Amazon Music in Canada. So I hope they never remove it from their catalog. Otherwise, I'm going to be very angry. But for wow. now, this is the way you can do it uh, in Canada. So, yeah. Much like alarms, you can't repeat uh, routines on an irregular pattern. So I can't have my routines go off uh, Monday to Thursday. I have to create the same routine for each day from Monday to Thursday. Or I can have it apply to all weekdays, but I can't like have it apply to multiple days, which is a giant pain in the ass because the Alexa app is obviously web-based and it is kind of slow to create routines and kind of janky to create routines. And having to go through the same process four times in a row without making a mistake is kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, so I really wish they would fix that. You also, uh, well, this would be more useful if you could actually bind a routine to execute after you dismiss an alarm. Because the issue you can have is you can have your alarm go off and music start playing at exactly the same time. Uh, and generally it will do the right thing, but sometimes it just gets bit confused so what i've done is i've just scheduled my routines to execute like a minute later and it sort of balances that out but i wish there was a feature that could just say trigger when it dismissed that alarm not here yet so time for some actual downsides uh routines can be invoked from anywhere where alexa can be used so if you're using uh, the amazon app you can ask it to run a routine and it will work if you're on an echo in uh, another house you have somewhere, you can ask that Echo to run a routine in another house and it'll work. Uh, but the routine executes on a specific Echo. So what that means is uh, when you create your routine, you specify which Echo it runs on. If that Echo is offline when you try to run that routine, it won't work. And that also means that if you make any um, volume change actions, that will only impact that specific Echo. Uh, so you can't have one routine that resets all of the volumes for all your echoes in that routine. You have to build a separate routine for each echo that executes at the same time. And then the volumes for those devices will go down. And again, it's kind of a problem because it makes the routine view completely messy. And there is no way to name routines that are not invoked by a phrase. 
which makes it very hard to know which of the weekday 6 p.m. routines is the correct <laughs> one when you're trying to modify wow. them. Wow. Yeah, they, 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 it seems that they are stored per device, but it's hard to know which device stored which one. Yeah, they're not organized by device. They're just executed on a specific device, but it's not listed in the list view which device they run on, so it's very confusing. It's much more simplified as a, an environment than the shortcuts app is. So if you're looking for something with like loops and conditionals, like there is none of that in Alexa routines. There's no programming logic blocks to dump into your routines. Just execute this list of actions in this order. Uh, and you can't do stuff like prompt for information or anything like that because it's really just meant to do things like actual actions as opposed to stuff that takes input. I wish there was an outward-facing API to allow me to invoke routines programmatically from third-party apps. If you want to invoke routines without voice right now, you have to use the slow and fiddly Alexa app. And it takes a lot of taps, basically, to turn off and on the lights if you want to use like a master turn-off-all-the-lights uh, routine. Uh, and I wish I could write like a watch app that could let me specify certain routines and execute them from my wrist, but I can't because there's no API to actually call those routines. And I wish there was a way to feed arbitrary text strings for different skills uh, because, like, I can't make a routine, for example, that starts the Roomba because it's not a smart home device that's understood by Alexa. It's just, like, a skill with verb actions that I can call. And there is no way to call arbitrary things. So if there was, like, feed it arbitrary text, it would be great. I don't think this is likely to happen, but it would be really cool if it happened. Okay, so that's it for smart home. Now let's go on to third party, which is the final section uh, before the conclusion. So we've talked a bunch about developing for Alexa on episode 85 about developing Alexa skills, where I wrote Horned Owl, which was a Overwatch League score checker uh, for Alexa. Are you still using it? No, because Overwatch League isn't happening anymore. And they're probably going oh. to be redoing the API so it's actually maybe public uh, this summer. So I just sort of I'm waiting to see what happens there. Uh, what's sort of sad is uh, the third party section is the part that is probably the least applicable to you if you live in another region than Canada uh, because of how weird the country setup is. So we mentioned this briefly on the development episode and elaborated on it in follow-up segments. But since... Uh, but let's give a brief recap. Skill developers need to submit separate voice interaction models for each combination of language and country they want to support. What that means is there's no easy way to support both English US and English Canada because you have to create two separate models for those things and there's no easy way to duplicate it. Uh, you also never really get a notification as a developer that there are new languages to support that became available, which is kind of unfortunate. And what this means in practice is that there are a lot of really cool Alexa skills that are available in the U.S. but aren't available in Canada because developers don't want to put in the effort to actually replicate their voice interaction model for Canada. And I expect this to be the case in most non-U.S. countries. Uh, another thing is that U.S. has slightly more features that they've been grandfathered into because uh, some things were previously available in the old skill SDK that are not available in the new skill SDK uh, that newer regions is, are using, which means things like the if this and that extension, which is super useful and supports arbitrary text input, 
Well, arbitrary text input is only available in the U.S. region. So if this and that is simply not available in any other country, which is really sucky. Uh, because you can do a lot of really cool automation things with IFTTT, except there's no way to actually invoke them, uh, which is a problem. Uh, third-party support is very weak in Canada specifically. Uh, the skills directory has a lot of things that I don't actually want to do via voice that have skills, uh, like online banking and uh, paying my phone bill. Like I don't want to do that via voice. I would rather do it in another interface where I can confirm things in a better way. Uh, and very few of the things that I want to actually do by voice are available as Alexa skills, which is kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, I alluded to Horned Owl earlier, but for a all digital medium like esports, it feels insane that none of the big esports leagues have Alexa skills that tells us scores and schedule information. It's League of Legends World's Championship in October, and it feels crazy that I can't ask Alexa what teams are playing today or what time the next Cloud9 game is starting. And I still think that Public municipal services and public transit should be making all of their data available via access skills. Although specifically in the case of Trois-Rivières, I understand they're probably never going to do so until French is actually available as language, uh, which totally makes sense. Uh, but I wish it was here now and not having to wait. So that's sort of the third party story for this thing. I really, really like the Alexa ecosystem. I mean, like the fact that I bought two more is proof enough that I think I believe in this much more than I do other voice assistants. I think that Amazon's motives are better aligned than Google's uh, with regards to uh, like Amazon's business is generally not advertising. It is selling things directly to me and making it convenient for me to buy things from Amazon. Uh, and I think there is some bad that can come from that. Whereas like if the echo just becomes a giant silo that spies on what I'm talking about to recommend Amazon products to me, it becomes worrisome. But in general, I think that Amazon has done a great job with uh, privacy and uh, doing the right thing and having good judgment about what makes a good product, especially with regards to voice assistant. It's no secret that I am generally very negative about Siri and nothing has sort of made that more obvious than the Apple Watch Series 4 in the last week, which we are definitely going to give our thoughts on Apple Watch Series 4 on a future episode, uh, except he doesn't has, have his yet. So we're going to be talking about that once we both have our watches. I currently have mine. Yeah, that, that would be quite useful if I have my watch. But eh, uh, there's a long story about that. I don't think it's the time to go for that. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, using the series four, what I have found incredibly infuriating about Siri is that it still sucks more often than not. It tells me I have to finish something on the phone or it takes 15 seconds to start a two minute timer or crazy stuff like that. And it is super unreliable. And 95% of the time, the question that I ask results in a web search results. Siri is not useful. It is not reliable. Unfortunately, it's what a lot of people are stuck with in their country, and I feel really bad for them because Alexa is so much better. And I appreciate Apple's approach to privacy and how they want to do the right thing and collect as little data as possible about their users and everything like that. But I think, especially for Siri, it's proven that it gives worse products uh, in the long term if you do that 100% of the time. And what you should do is collect the information, but prove that you're a company that is worthy of a user's trust. Uh, and I, we can always argue about like, well, what if the government goes to Apple? Then they have a lot more information they can hand over to the 
the government than if they never collected it at all. Yes, I understand all that, but that is sort of a niche case uh, that is unlikely to touch very many users. Uh, so I, I have trouble balancing all of that. Like I, I want to be more pragmatic and have stuff that is more practical for the most of the users. Uh, and I think Amazon is doing the best job right now. Yeah, I think I, this is where you lose me a bit. I, I think the pragmatic approach is if you don't have the data, it's hard to compare you to have the data. But I don't think we want to go on a big discussion about uh, government and handling of data from big tech companies. But that's kind of my thinking about that approach. Um, on the other side is at some point I might just consider that because of that trade-off, um, it makes for a shittier product and that could be a big reason why city is Siri is shittier compared to Alexa and everything. And you know what? At that point, we might like, like you've done, you might just spend your dollar elsewhere. And if enough people spend their dollar elsewhere from Siri, maybe Apple will wake up and maybe not. But I think at that point, that is, uh, the, the best way to do it uh, because Apple is stuck to sticking to their guns to that approach where privacy uh, is frontmost for Siri and all of their products these days, which to me is good. And uh, at, to this point, I'm still uh, okay with Siri being a bit shittier um, compared to our products, but I still am interested in maybe looking into the Amazon uh, suite of products when it becomes available in my locale now the counterpoint that i want to give but i also want to say something slightly positive about the home pod of all things which is very strange because i didn't think i would be saying that but uh because third-party support is generally quite bad in canada i don't think home pod users are actually missing out on that many features that the echo has like named timers was the big one and that appears to have been resolved in terms of features that I actually use day to day, the HomePod does like 95% of what I actually do on my Echo. It just does it less consistently and for a significantly higher price. And I, I know that's not like for everyone. And the part where it really falls on its face is when you ask it like actual questions that have answers. Because I think Siri has been poorly designed to deal with those kinds of problems. And Google deals a lot better with it because they have like their answer box thing uh, from Google search that basically if you ask it something, it's actually going to read you that answer box thing instead of telling you open your phone to look at web page results. Uh, so the fact that they've had that answer box thing in Google search for many, many years means that they've gotten relatively good at getting extracting the answers out of existing web pages and then feeding that to the uh, text-to-speech so that they can read it to you uh, the problem uh, with that of course is it can be gamed uh, there have been like multiple cases within the last couple of years of like conspiracy theory websites and political enemies of various parties using that feature to spread misinformation about things via voice assistance and i am not necessarily fan of that idea uh, and I think generally the fact that um, Amazon.com has not been a search engine in many, many years uh, has also uh, helped them sort of curate their own uh, database of knowledge that isn't publicly exposed to people who are trying to game the system, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but yeah, like it, 
HomePod, it's really like it has enough of the feature set that I can say like, yes, if I was just comparing them on a check mark to check mark basis, like the features are there, but it's just too unreliable for too high a cost, in my opinion. And for that aspect, I think you're totally right. Good. It's interesting the comparison you're making uh, between uh, Alexa, the assistant, and Alexa, the own, uh, the smart own devices, like be it being the OAP. Um, to me, I would say that my, like I said, uh, my series jits went down again because um, my quick experiment with HomeKit and uh, HomeBridge, especially, uh, stopped abruptly because uh, we had to paint the office where my iMac is usually in, and now my my poor uh, 2008 iMac is back in its box and hasn't been unboxed since we finished painting. So uh, we're back on using the uh, the U app because my U bridge is not HomeKit compatible. And even at the end, even if I love the uh, HomeKit com- functionality where I could automate uh, stuff, it still felt that uh, once every blue moon, the either the iMac would like lost Wi-Fi or Home Bridge would have crashed or something. And then it, it was at that moment that Tony tried to use the lamps or the lights. Uh, and he was like complaining, why the fuck doesn't work again? So there was always this fallback to uh, the U apps. But in general, I'm quite impressed of the HomeKit functionality and the, its automation aspect. Uh, one of the nice things we've done was to light up a light uh, in the living room of a different color depending on who's arriving. So if I'm in the apartment and I know Tony is about to arrive back from work or back from a friend's place in 15-20 minutes... Once he's around the apartment building, I know that if somebody's making weird sound in the staircase, that might be Tony. So I don't need to worry too much about that. I really love that feature and I was planning to do a bit more uh, automation, but only with lights, it's a bit harder. So that's why I was uh, looking uh, at more devices. But like I discussed a bit in this episode, uh, the smart law, lo- uh, the smart plugs was livid- leaving me a bit, uh, on my appetite, I wanted more, mainly because all of the, I, I think the only one would be the kettle like you, Yannick, but I don't drink coffee nor tea uh, every day uh, when I wake up. Uh, so that would be the only one I could automate, but don't really need automation for it. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I actually envy of the HomeKit ecosystem is all of that like geofencing automation stuff, because I think geofencing, like, I'm fascinated with geofencing. I think there's so much cool stuff you can do with it. And like in an ideal world, my uh, Alexa routines for playing music when I'm in and out of the house would be geofence based and not time based um, because that would be more reliable. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with that. And I wish like either if this net come to Canada and then they could handle it for me or it was just supported built into the Alexa app. But doesn't look like that's happening anytime soon. Good. So if you want to see all of our show notes on this episode, all of the related links to uh, the Nintendo Switch and NES and all of the uh, Amazon stuff that Nick mentioned, so the device he bought, maybe some of his, of his favorite skills, you can find all of these show notes on our website at limitlesspossibility slash 97. You can also dot net f- slash ninety seven. Oh my goodness! Yes, dot net slash ninety seven. Oh my gosh! I'm too excited about the show notes tonight. We don't have a TLD yet. 
Yes, I, I wish we had a TLD, but I don't think we have enough money to get a TLD. No. But so limitlesspossibility.net slash 97. So if you go on our uh, main uh, our URL, so limitlesspossibility.net, you can find our back catalog of episodes that is full of other 96 episodes. You can find the latest news about the podcast on twitter at at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast you can find myself on twitter at at lukonosh that's l-e-u-c-c-o-n-o-u-c-g and you can find yannick at sakurina s-a-k-u-r-i-n-a and we'll see you in two weeks see you in two weeks